welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. If you've got your Bibles with you, we're going to be in Acts chapter 1 this morning. You can go ahead and turn there. Um, one of my favorite songs, it's one of those songs that, that uh, just sticks with you for a long time, is a country song. I know that may be taboo in a Baptist church to talk about a country song. But it's by an artist named Rodney Atkins, and it's called I've Been Watching You. And the way this song goes, it's about a dad and his relationship with his young son and how the son mimics his dad. The first verse starts off, and he's talking about how he's taking his son to get a Happy Meal, and they're driving home and somebody cuts him off in traffic and he slams on his brakes and he has to come to a screeching halt and the kid's Happy Meal goes flying in the back seat. And then the verse goes, I love the way he put this, I thought it was really creative. He said, and then my four-year-old four said a four-letter word, it started with S and I was concerned. And he said, I turned around and said, son, where did you learn to talk like that? And the course of the song is the answer of the son. And the son replies, he said, I've been watching you, dad, ain't that cool? I'm your buckaroo, I want to be like you and eat all my food and grow as tall as you are. We got cowboy boots and camo pants, yet we're just alike, ain't we, Dad? I want to do everything you do, so I've been watching you. And in the song for him as a father, this is a wake-up call that, that what he's doing in life is, is a big deal to try to, to try to mentor his son and how he's living as an example for his son. So it says when he gets home, he goes out to the barn and he kneels down and he prays this prayer of repentance. God, I have failed so much as a father that I have not been modeling a correct left lifestyle for my child. And at the end of verse 2 it ends with him putting his son to bed and, and he says, my son lays there, or kneels down beside his bed and he begins to talk to God like he was a friend and he says, where did you learn to pray like that? And the boy replies, I've been watching you, dad ain't that cool, I'm your buckaroo I want to be like you. Kids model the behavior of their parents, right? Because that's the example that they have set forth in your life. Your kids will act for better or for worse just like you a lot of the time. But you know, just because we're not kids anymore, and most of us aren't kids in here, doesn't mean that we're not kind of the same. We still model the behavior, or we still mimic the behavior that is modeled for us. We, we mimic the fashion styles we see in Hollywood. The more you see somebody obsessed with stars, the more you'll see them dressing and acting like them. We model the political opinions of pundits on the, uh, on the news channels. I love this. I've been thinking about this a lot. I was off for a couple snow days and I spent a little bit too much time on social media this week. And um, I was watching all the, it's not TikToks, it's on Facebook, but the short videos or whatever. And um, I saw the same video a hundred different times performed by like 80 different people. They were doing the exact same thing, but it was a trend. It was a new Miley Cyrus song, I can buy myself flowers. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? And all the women are dancing around with the flowers they bought themselves. It's the exact same thing that they had saw somebody else do and they just recreated the video. We, we mimic what is modeled for us. And when you see your closest friend group, your closest friend group will change your interests. See, what you are around, who or what you spend your time pursuing, you will evolve into that. So if that's true, if we are going to mimic the behavior that is modeled for us, 
If that's true and we are also dedicating our lives to following Jesus Christ, doesn't it make sense that we need to surround ourselves with people who are going to model a godly lifestyle for us? People who, who we can follow their behavior because their behavior points us to God. Now let me tell you where I'm going with this. We've been in a series called Disciple Follower Student. And basically all we're doing is like, what does it mean to be a disciple practically? What does that look like in my day-to-day -day life? How do I learn to follow God? Two weeks ago we talked about the importance of studying the teachings of Jesus. Studying your Bible. Because if I'm going to follow Jesus Christ, I need to know what he taught me to do. So it's important for a disciple to spend time constantly learning what it means and what it looks like to follow Christ. Last week we talked about the need for, for two-way conversation with Christ, for prayer that, that is real, genuine, in the spirit prayer, talking to God, not just babbling something at a night time or coming to church and saying the same words over and over again, but real conversation with God, building relationships. This week we want to talk about the third habit of a disciple. If you've got your notes with you, this is your first take-home truth. Habit number three is to be surrounded by his people. See, the way God designed you, God designed you. He knows everything about how your brain works. He knows how your relationships work. He knows everything about you. And God designed humans to be relational beings. As a matter of fact, they used to teach us in school that you needed three things to live. You needed food, water, and shelter. But over the last several years, psychologists have begun to add to that and said, no, no, food, water, and shelter is not enough. You also need love. For a human being to survive, they need connection with another human being. And God designed you that way. God designed you to need relationships. He designed you to want to be parents. He designed you to want to be in romantic relationships. He designed you to need friend groups, friend groups and social groups. And so when it comes to following Christ as a disciple, God knows that if you are going to spiritually grow, you're going to spiritually grow in relationship. I've said this a hundred times and I hope to say it a hundred more times is when it comes to church, your faith community, you do not need attendance at a church. You need connection at a church. You need to be making friendships and relationships with other people. And this isn't just my opinion. This is, this is modeled by the earliest disciples to a point where I believe the scripture teaches that it is not only something that we should do or should want to do, that it is an expectation of a disciple. Today we're going to be in the book of Acts, and if, if you're not really familiar with how the book of Acts kind of fits in with the, the narrative of the Bible, Jesus has come, he started his earthly ministry, he's called to himself 12 apostles or disciples, there are other people following him as well. Jesus is crucified, three days later he is resurrected, he begins to appear to his disciples for 40 days, and at the end of those 40 days, Jesus ascends up into heaven. The book of Acts deals what, with what those disciples and the apostles did in Jesus' absence. Once Jesus has been here and he's gone, what happens to them? And, and what you'll see in the book of Acts, that the book of Acts is marked by community and connection. 90% of the book of Acts has to deal with people serving God in groups. There's a few stories in there about an individual or individuals, but most of the time they're always with maybe one or two other disciples or many disciples. As a matter of fact, in the book of Acts, the word they, that communal word meaning a group of people, is used 272 times. 
They went here. They prayed together. They were together. They performed miracles together. They asked each other what to do. They are always together. So if you would in your Bible, let, let's read and see what the disciples are doing immediately after the ascension of Jesus. We're going to start in verse 12. This is the very next verse after the disciples have watched Jesus go up into heaven. They're standing there looking at heaven and angels say, why don't y'all go do something? Don't stand here waiting on him. He'll be back when he gets back. Look what happens. Verse 12. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when, there it is again, communal word, they were come in, they went up into an upper room where abode Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon Zealotus and Judas the brother of James. It's a lot of people abiding in one room, isn't it? These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women, the Mary and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. So here's what you see out of these disciples. Immediately after Jesus leaves, you see that everything they're doing is in a group together. They don't all go to their own houses and go about their lives. They are marked by community and connection with each other. Uh, they travel together. You see they're staying together. That's just a lot of men in one room. I'm just, I lived in an apartment with three other men. It was a two-bedroom apartment. It was like the worst year of my life, best year of my life too. But it was really hard. A lot of men staying in one place. And it says that they were meeting there with prayer and supplication. Supplication just means that they're asking God for things. Now, I, I love what's happening. You got to put yourself in the place of the disciples here in Acts. This is a time of great turmoil for them. And what do they turn to in this time of great turmoil? They turn to prayer, and they turn to community. Because think about it. Think about just if you were one of the apostles, right? Like you've got a job, you're a fisherman, or you're a tax collector. Things are going pretty good. A carpenter walks by, he looks at you in the eye, and he says, you follow me. And you leave your entire life to follow this man who you believe to be the Messiah. And you see the ups and downs of that life in ministry. You're with Jesus and all of a sudden you're looking at a person with leprosy and then all of a sudden they don't have leprosy in front of your eyes. How did that happen? This is amazing. Jesus is amazing. You're seeing blind people get their sight. You're seeing people who can't walk, get up and jump and sing and dance. You're seeing all of these things. But then on the other hand, sometimes you go into a city and the people there don't like what you're doing and you leave under threat of death because they're trying to kill you and Jesus who you're following. But, but then things go really good again. You go into another city and there people greet the person you're following. They greet Jesus. They sing Hosanna. They, they lay palm leaves down in front of him. They're so excited that he's there. There's, there's crowds that gather around him and celebrate him. And then you watch this man, this carpenter that you believe to the, be the Messiah, arrested and tried in a kangaroo court and crucified for crimes that he didn't do. I mean, can you see the up and down of what the disciples have had to deal with in following Jesus? And for three days, you don't know what to do. It wasn't supposed to end like this. But suddenly word comes to you. You're sitting there, you're praying, what do we do now? He's gone, he's dead, and word comes to you that, hey, the tomb is empty, and I'm pretty sure I saw him. And you run down there, and you start looking for Jesus, and suddenly you start seeing the resurrected Jesus. Can you imagine what a shot in the arm that was? They can't kill him. He's back with us. And for 40 days, you see him. And then all of a sudden, he takes you to a mountain, and he says, I'm leaving. I'll come back sometime. In the meantime, go work. And suddenly you're alone again. That's what the disciples were dealing with. They, they were terrified. And what they turned to in this moment of, moment of turmoil, 
was prayer and connection. See, what the early disciples model is so different from what we sometimes think church should look like. See, what you see in the disciples is they didn't just have a weekly connection where they sat in the same room for an hour, where they sat high to a few people and shook hands and talked about the recent sports scores. These people did life together. What you see of the early disciples is they were much more like a family than they were an organization or a location. They lived with each other and died with each other. So our next take-home truth is this, is a disciple's closest relationship are with other disciples. I'm going to say that again. I want, you, I want you to hear that, and I want you to ask if that's in your life. A disciple's closest relationships are with other disciples. And I know, I know that sometimes when we say straight things like that, it comes off like a guilt trip, like you should be a church more. I don't do that. Here's the truth. It's not a guilt trip. You're missing out on God's plans for you if you're not interacting in a community. Listen, the greatest blessing in this life is knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior. Okay, I got some amens on that one. Good, I was wondering if y'all were right. Like, like the greatest blessing in this life is knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior. And not just because one day I'm gonna go die and go to heaven. Like in this life, today, following Jesus Christ is the greatest thing that any of us are ever going to experience. And part of our relationship with Jesus Christ, part of what he calls us to is community and connection, which is also a great blessing. That means that we get to be around other people who experience the same joy and peace and excitement for God that we do. See, when Jesus walked around, he talked a lot about what, what he called the kingdom of heaven. And when we hear the word heaven, we automatically go to, okay, I die, I go to hell, or I go to heaven. I get to go to heaven because of Jesus Christ. So when I hear kingdom of heaven, I think about when I die, hallelujah, bye and bye. I'll fly away, right? That's how we're, like we're, we're, all, we're all on that, that stage. But when Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven, he, he was talking about throughout all ages and all time where Jesus Christ sits as king. Not just the physical place where our souls go when we die, but here on this earth as we live now where God's goodness rules. And as a follower, you come to Christ and you say, God, I choose you as my Lord. I follow you. You and I are part of the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's hard to understand, but we are part of the kingdom of heaven where Jesus rules. And when Jesus rules in this world, his goodness begins to shape our world. Can you imagine a world? Can you imagine a world where no family member ever dealt with substance abuse? Can you imagine what it would be like if we lived in a world where families never broke apart? where wives were always cherished by their husbands, husbands were always honored by their wives, where there was never any cheating. Can you imagine a world where there, there was very few disputes and when there were disputes, they were small and they were resolved with love and forgiveness very quickly? See, that's what the kingdom of heaven looks like because when Jesus rules in our life, that's the kind of people we become. And so when we gather as a church, we are a model of the kingdom of heaven. We are people who say, Jesus Christ and his rules rule in my life. And that comes out as action. That comes out as, as the results of the kingdom of heaven. Now, to be fair, all of those things are not always true in a church, but it's supposed to be. So our next take home truth is this, is a disciple should live in a community that models the king, kingdom of heaven. 
And I want to be clear, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that everybody you're around has to be perfect. It doesn't mean that everybody in a church is perfect. I'm not perfect. I love you, but you're not perfect either. We're going to get to that in a minute. Like, like it's about people pursuing perfection. When we come here, we should be pursuing God's goodness and his perfection in our life. I like college football a little bit of college basketball. And, and I get a little bit too into it. Like I'll listen to interviews of athletes and they'll, they'll tell about their life, how they, how they came to be at the University of Arkansas and things of like that. And, and so many of them have somewhat of a similar story. How did you get so good at football? Well, I was the first one to practice and I was the last one that left. I said all my friends weren't like that. They were always out partying or having fun or hanging out on the weekends. But I, I dedicated my life to this sport. And these athletes will tell you, I had to cut out people in my life whose habits did not meet my habits. If it's true for athletes to be successful in the sports world, why wouldn't that be true for Christians to be successful in our spiritual world? See, the people around us will change us. And that's why we need to build deep relationships with people who love Christ because they will change us for the better. I don't know if you guys know how schools work. They don't have a lot of money. And uh, this time of year, you've got several hundred students and staff who all have the sniffles. And in that particular scenario where you've got about 80 kids coming in and out of your classroom in a day, um, it's impossible to keep boxes of Kleenex in your room. You go through them in like two periods, hour and a half, Kleenexes are gone. So teachers are resourceful. And what happens at a school is the custodians will go into the bathrooms and they'll clean and they'll look at the big industrial rolls of toilet paper. And when they start to look like this, they're almost gone. They'll go ahead and change them out. And then they'll store the leftover toilet paper in the custodian's closet. And that's where we get our tissue paper. Go raid the custodian's closet to go get something to blow your nose on. I'm going somewhere with this. Hang tight for just a second, I promise. Uh, I picked this up earlier this week. And uh, uh, first time I blew my nose with it, it had a... Uh, an aroma. Uh, hang on, some of you guys are getting ahead of me. And uh, you're going down the wrong road. Going down the wrong road. It, it smelled like flowers. It, it's still, anybody want to smell my toilet paper? Can, can I say that? Like, it smells like flowers. I was like, wow. First off, I felt really fancy. Like I'm here using the leftover toilet paper to blow my nose and it's just like the good expensive Kleenex, right? But I was like, why does that smell so good? And I realized that in the custodian's closet where I got this, this had been sitting on top of a box of bar soap for two or three days. And the aroma of the soap had soaked into this. Like, like, because this was in contact with soap, it now smells like soap. Now, let me ask you this. Stick with me here. What is your aroma? If that's a metaphor that just feels weird, let me just ask you this. What exudes from you? When you walk in a room, what is the vibe and the feel that people get from you? What do you put off when you're around other people? That could be really good. It could also be really bad. You may be the kind of person that walks into a room and you exude anger and bitterness and hatred. And everybody knows that you're, you're going to be the kind of person that's just going to explode at the earliest moment. You're the one who's always putting people in their place. You're the one who always has something to say about somebody else. Maybe, maybe you exude pride. Arrogance is something you can see on people. And, and you're always trying to prove you're better than others. And people just feel that from you as you chase success to prove I am better than you. Maybe you exude jealousy. 
Somebody gets a new car and instead of being excited for them, you just immediately think, I'd like a new car. How'd they afford that? That's the third new car in five years. And that jealousy just comes off of you. And there's a hundred different things that that could possibly be. But let me ask you, if you find one of those things, if you find your aroma or what comes from you in your life, you don't like it, I want to challenge you to assess your closest friendships. And here's my bet. I don't gamble, but if I did, I would bet you this. Is that whatever is coming from you in your life, you're going to find modeled for you in your closest relationships or affirmed for you in your closest relationships. But the good news of that is, is that we can exude the exact opposite. We can exude Jesus Christ. I want so badly to be one of those Christians who walks into a room and people's like, there's one. Don't even have to say a word. I know people like that. They walk in a room and you can identify them by the look in their eyes. These people are just exuding love and graciousness to other people. That can be us. But the truth is, it's not going to be us unless we're in contact with the right people and with the right things. What you're around will begin to come from you. And in Acts, in the book of Acts, you see the disciples, they're, they're, they're constantly with each other for that reason, and they're doing great things for God, for God. They're exuding Jesus for the world. Keep reading with me if you still got your Bibles in Acts chapter 2. We're going to skip over and do verses 1 through 4. So the disciples are together again, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, let me explain Pentecost. Pentecost was a Jewish holiday that celebrated the giving of the Torah, the first part of the Bible. It usually happened around harvest time. So when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Uh, this particular event happens 10 days after Jesus lives or leaves. And I just want you to look at the circumstances before we talk about what happens. Look at the circumstances here. They're together still. Ten days later, they're still in the same place with each other. They're still in community. They're still pursuing God together. They're still praying together. They're still all in the same place. And in those ten days prior to this, they did absolutely nothing except for choose a twelfth disciple. And in this particular circumstance, this is when God chooses to do something amazing. One of the most amazing things in the New Testament is when Jesus, or when God gives the Holy Spirit to his believers. I don't have time to teach a whole doctrinal study on this, but a quick breakdown if you don't understand what this means. The Holy Spirit is part of God. God exists as a trinity. One God and three persons, the Holy Spirit is one of those. And when you are saved, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. He will convict you, He will guide you, and He will comfort you. And the first time when God gives the Holy Spirit to the believers happens right here. And it happens when they were together. And all the language here is talking about their connection with each other. Each man, all of them. It, it was an all or nothing type situation. It wasn't that Peter got it and then later maybe John got it. They all received the Holy Spirit collectively and then they began to go to work. This is a turning point in world history. Jesus Christ coming and being born is a turning point. His death and resurrection is a turning point. But when God gives the Holy Spirit to believers and puts them to work, it's a turning point in how the history of the world went down. And suddenly his believers begin to go out, they begin to preach, they begin to do miracles. But it happened when they were together. 
Our next take-home truth is God chooses to use his disciples in a group. See, when they went out and they began to preach and do miracles, you see something different here. You see Peter, who, by the way, if you ever wonder what the power of the Holy Spirit is, Peter was one of those persons who couldn't say the right thing no matter what he said. If you look in the scripture, it's roughly five dumb things coming out of Peter's mouth to every one good thing that comes out, and that's being generous. That's not an actual statistic. That's a guess. But suddenly, when God gives them the Holy Spirit, when God begins to work in this group of people and send them out, Peter becomes the prince of preachers. The man who denied Jesus Christ before his death stands up in front of groups of people, thousands of people, and he begins to preach. And we don't have time to go through the whole sermon, but he preaches salvation, that Jesus Christ is God, that he was killed, um, he was killed for no reason, that he rose again, proving that he had the power of life. And when people ask, what do we do? He said, repent and accept him as your savior. Peter has this amazing ability to do this, but he's not alone when he does it. He's with many other believers. So let's continue reading what happens after that sermon in verse 40 of chapter 2. And with many other words that he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they, then they, I'm sorry, then they that gladly received his word were baptized. In the same day there were added unto them, I love that, we're going to come back to that in a second, added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking of bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church such as should be saved. That is a picture of what a church is supposed to look like. I love the language that the Bible uses. It talks about salvation. It talks about people's eternity changing. When they turn away from their lifestyle and they accept Jesus Christ as Lord. When they become a part of the family of God. And I love the way the Bible puts that. It says that when that happened, these people were added to them. When a person became saved, when a person became a disciple of Jesus Christ, they became a part of the community of other believers. Nowhere in here does it say that somebody got saved and went on about their own life. They became a part of the community. See, biblically, being a disciple means being part of a group. And many of these people were accepting something that was very unpopular. In today's world, you can go out in the world and say you're a Christian and some people may look at you weird, some people may be angry at you, but for the most part, life is going to be relatively normal for you. But the people that are talked about here in the beginning of Acts are people who are having to walk away from their parents to follow Jesus Christ. They're walking away from their siblings and their friends to follow Jesus Christ. They're giving up their lifestyle to get emerged in a culture of surrender to Jesus Christ. And I love the effects of what happens in this community as they are serving God. In all three of the passages I've read this morning, you see the words, one accord. It's my favorite thing to talk about when we talk about the church. One accord simply means that they were of one heart, one soul, and one mind. These people were so close to each other, they were so committed to each other, they were so committed to following Christ that it changed how they thought. It changed what they cared about. And the community began to shape them and became a major component of who they are. 
This morning when you walked in, uh, you should have been handed a rock. And contrary to what the door greeters told you, you cannot throw these at me. <laughs> you know, I'm really disappointed that I come up with a sermon illustration about community and immediately when somebody hands you a rock, everybody in this church begin talking about throwing it at somebody else in their church. We've got some work to do, people. We may be saved, but we're not completely sanctified yet. Now, this rock is, is genuine Independence County sandbar rock. You should have a rock in your hand that is smooth and with no rough edges. This rock originally looked something like this. This came from my front yard. It's rough, like I could use it as sandpaper. It's got jagged edges on it. It's broke. It's so much different than the rocks I handed you. What's the difference between these? You've seen it. River rock, river rock is just simply taking a rock like this and you submerge it in a power greater than itself. And as this rock is moved and shifted, it bumps into other rocks and it starts to become polished. This, the, the hard edges begin to be chipped away. It begins to, the coarse exteriors begin to smooth and in truth it becomes pretty. It doesn't happen overnight, but the results over time are undeniable that it happens that a rough rock like this, when placed in a river, will look like the rocks that you hold in your hands. Listen to me. This is God's plan for your life once you become a follower of Christ. God's plan, God's plan in your life is to submerge you in his power. And his power is going to push you and drive you into other believers. And over time, as you come into contact with other believers, your coarse edges are going to begin to, rot, to uh, be smoothed away. All of these chipped places are going to break off. He's going to smooth you out, and he's going to make you something beautiful for the kingdom of Christ. Listen, it does not happen overnight, but the results of time are undeniable. But listen, this will only happen if you allow God's power to move you into relationships with other people. I can take this rock down to the river once a week and I can put it in the river for an hour and I can take it back out and it will never look different than this. It's only when this is submerged in the power of the river and it spends time bouncing and beating against other rocks that it becomes a smooth river rock. The same thing's true for you in community. One hour a week's not gonna do you a lot of good. But when you come to a church and you begin to build relationships and you begin to know, to know people and you begin to pray with others and you begin to serve together, the difference will start, you will start to become different in that. That's why we say there's a difference in attending church and a difference in engaging church. So the question is, is how do I get that? And the simple answer is, I'm not going to be able to give that to you. It's a decision that you make individually to engage in a church, to build those relationships. And at Ramsey Heights, we want you to be a part of our community. We want you to be comfortable. We want to be a part of shaping you. And here's the important thing. We want you to be a part of shaping us. I may be, I may be the pastor here, but you guys shape me when we come together. Like part of my growth is being here with you. And if you're here and you're not engaging in community, you have something to offer that the church is currently missing. So I want to go over a couple of, of things that you might want to consider for some spiritual growth. Uh, the first thing, this is on your take-home truths, 
I think I may have missed one there. Your last take home truth should have been God's plan for you is to shape you in community. Moving on, our steps of growth to consider, number one, is membership. There's a lot of you that are here. This is your church. You're here every Sunday or every other Sunday. This is where you belong and you know it. You're not going anywhere else. You don't want to go anywhere else. You love me. I love you. We're all together. Like that's, that's what you should be doing. So why, why, if that's the truth, why wouldn't you want to commit to the church? See, when we talk about joining a church, it's not this fancy thing about getting your name on a list. It's simply identifying yourself to the church that I am here to grow. I'm not here to observe. I'm here to be a part of the family. I'm here to grow. I'm here to give accountability and expect accountability. I'm, I'm here to serve God with you. I'm here to be a part of this family. And it identifies you to others so that others can reach out to you. And I know in a lot of classical contexts, the way that this happens is there's this expectation that you step out in the middle of invitation. You walk up here and you grab my hand and you say, Pastor, I want to join the church. And if you want to do that, you're more than welcome to do so. Come see me. I'll be right up here in about five minutes. Come see me. But I understand that's uncomfortable. Grab me after church. I'm always standing around talking to somebody. Hey, hey, Brian, I want to talk to you. Can, can we start to move forward with moving the church thing? Absolutely. And I'll begin to guide you through that. But, but you need to commit to a place where people can help grow you and you can help grow others. Secondly, our second step of growth to consider is small groups. I want you to really do what I'm about to ask you to do. I want you to look around. Seriously, you're all still looking at me. Look at everybody. And I, I, want, I want you to ask yourself, how many people in here do you know their name? For some of you, the answer is three. I know Brian because he preaches. I know Olivia because she leads our music. And I know Glenita because I don't know how, but everybody knows Glenita. We'd have visitors from Russia and they'd know Glenita. I don't know how that works. For some, for some of you, it might be 10%. It might be 50%. There's probably five to 10 people in here that could say 90 to 100% of the people in this room do I know. Listen, you're never going to get to know people by showing up at 1150, or 1059 and leaving at 1159. You're never going to show up by, or never get to know people by showing up five to ten minutes before the service and sitting in your pew. What, what we want you to do is begin to build relationships with a small group of people in a small group. We call them bridge crews, where, where you will study the Word of God with 10 to 15 people and you'll begin to get to know them. First, you'll learn their name, and then you'll learn their little quirks. You figure out which people you like which people you don't like, but you have to love. And then you'll hear them tell stories about how they got saved. And you hear them talk about how they met their spouse and that time their marriage went through a rocky time and how God helped them when their children were having a hard time. You'll hear all of these stories and you'll begin to grow deep relationships centered on your mutual love for God. And when that happens, then suddenly it's not uncomfortable to show up when we have Light the Night and work. I know 10 or 15 people there. I've got friends all over the place. I can show up and work when we have an outreach. I can show up to watch The Chosen, which, by the way, Jared announced that this morning. You're going to want to come see that, those eight episodes we're going to show. I can show up. I know people. And then you'll meet other people. And before you know it, you will be so engaged in community. So I want to offer those two things to you. If you're interested in learning more about small groups today, Larry is not here. He's feeling sick. But Jared, who's one of our small group leaders, will be out in the foyer immediately after church. I just encourage you to go talk to him. He can tell you about either class, or what they're studying. Um, you can get to know him. And, and I would really suggest that you do that and find yourself a small group. Because see, here's what I see today as we talk about this, as we talk about practically what it looks like to be a disciple. Today is an opportunity for you, Liv, if you want to come up here, to grow in Christ. 
One way or another, you have an opportunity. And I say this each and every week. I'm just going to ask you, don't leave here the same as you came in. For some of you, everything, everything that I just said needs to be put on hold because right now the only relationship that we're worried about you having is a relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, this relational stuff that we're talking about doesn't just apply to other people. God wanted relationship with you. That's what salvation is. Jesus Christ came here and he looked at you and he said, I want you so badly that any obstacle, the obstacle of your sin, I will die to get rid of it so that I can know you and you can know me. Jesus talks again and again and again about knowing his people and his people knowing him. And for you, maybe today is the day of salvation. Maybe it's time for you to say, I want to follow Christ. I want to know more about him. Come see me. I'll be right here. And for the rest of us, maybe we're followers of Christ. Maybe, maybe we've given our life to him. I want to encourage you to say, how can I become more involved in community? What's my next step? Is it membership? Is it small groups? Is it showing up to Wednesday night services? What is it that you can begin to grow in him? Because your spiritual growth will take off when you're around others who love him. Let's stand and worship together.